background. Matthew chapter 9, verse 13, and chapter 12, verse 7, was presented by Ron Julian on August 5, 2015, at Gutenberg College's Summer Institute, Reunion, Tanakh and the Gospel of Matthew. The copyright for this recording is held by Gutenberg College, Inc., 2015. Gutenberg College is a non-profit organization, and contributions may be made at www.gutenberg.edu. This material may be copied and distributed in whole for non-commercial and educational purposes, subject to the inclusion of this introduction. All other rights reserved. PDF notes accompany this talk. Okay, let's get started. So I just have a few things to say. I don't really have a lot to say here. We have two passages in Matthew that we're going to be looking at where Jesus is quoting the section in Hosea that we looked at. So I have a few things, a few comments to make. First of all, in both places we have this quote and in your New American Standard or whatever it is you have, it probably has something like compassion or mercy. The Greek word here is Elias, which often means something like mercy or compassion. A good example, it seems to me, of this sort of sense that the word can have from James 2.13, for judgment will be merciless to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. So there the, it's very much involved with this question of are you going to be judged or are you going to receive mercy? Is someone going to treat you harshly because you deserve it or are you going to be treated with compassion and mercy and overlook what you've done and that sort of thing. We, we have Paul talking about vessels of mercy versus vessels of wrath and so on. So that's the Greek word that is used in the New Testament. The point that I wanted to make, I'm not trying to argue one way or the other here, but I just wanted to make the point that Elias is used in the Septuagint. This Greek word is used in the Septuagint to translate the Hebrew word kesed. And I think it's often used to translate kesed, if I'm, I think that's right. I just want to comment how we, if you think about it, you might recognize that a translation of something from the Bible, we can experience this in English, where I might give an English quote the New American Standard or the King James or something that everybody is familiar with, even though I'm aware that a particular word that has been chosen to translate it might not be the best word to translate it or would need to be explained because there's kind of more involved there. But sometimes you just don't give that explanation. You just quote it and you leave it at that. So I think it seems clear to me that there are times in the New Testament where they will quote the Septuagint, but that quote is not necessarily an endorsement of that every word in that translation is exactly the best word to translate the Hebrew word that's involved. So we have a choice. What I mean to suggest is the Greek text of Matthew uses the word Elias, but from my perspective, mm -hmm. that does not necessarily mean that Matthew is saying Elias captures exactly what chesed means, so the fact that that word, Greek word Elias was used is a commentary on Hosea, and it tells us what it is that it means there. It could be, 
<laughs> but it doesn't have to be. That's the thing I wanted to say. My main point that I wanted to make is because it seems to me that this word is so central as we're trying to sort out what it means in Hosea and what is Jesus doing with it. You don't have to agree with me on this, but I would invite you to think about your own experience where the fact that somebody quotes a translation doesn't necessarily mean that they're giving their endorsement to every single word that's in there. You might just leave it to the reader to go back and look at the passage and think about what's going on. And I think it's clear that Jesus, like Matthew, is the sort of person who would quote a verse but then expect you to go back and think about it in context and what that means. And that means then that we're free to have some flexibility in how we think about the sense of this word elios. So, not telling you what to do with that, but from my, that would be my advice as you're thinking about this for what it's worth. We see in Matthew 9.11, talks about the tax gatherers and sinners. Probably a familiar concept to you. The tax gatherers were Jews who had collaborated with Rome to collect taxes and often extort large amounts for themselves. So they were fellow Jews who were collaborating with the oppressor and they were costing me a lot of money. So they were hated on several counts. Sinners is actually a little bit more complicated. There have been various discussions in scholarship about what exactly the sense of the word sinners was at this time. There's a very common argument that's made that the Pharisees would see as sinners what sometimes is referred to as the people of the land. Basically anybody, in a way you could say anybody who wasn't a Pharisee, anyone who wasn't meticulously following the law according to the way they thought it ought to be kept. And that has been a common argument that has been made that that's what would be meant by sinners. But I have seen others argue that it's a stronger term than that and that it captures actually not just the people of the land, the sort of day-to-day -day general person, but someone whose life is a rebuke to the law, like a prostitute or someone like that, someone who through the way they live has demonstrated that they have no interest in submitting to the law. So there is that question as to what's happening with that word. Like I said, in my background talks, I mostly raise questions, the questions that are worth thinking about as you look at the passages. So the question that arises there, of course, then is why did the Pharisees see it as wrong to eat with them? What was the problem? What did they think Jesus was doing wrong? In the other passage, talking about going through the wheat fields and uh, picking off the grain, the Pharisees complain that it is not lawful to do it on a Sabbath. And again, I'm raising the question. My expectation is that Carl can correct everything I say when it comes to this stuff. But my understanding at this point would be that it would be hard to look at something specific in the Torah and say, see, that says you're not supposed to do this. What we're talking about is the rabbis had developed a series of explanations for specifically and practically how is it that you live and yet don't violate the command not to work on the Sabbath. What does it look like not to work on the Sabbath? And they had developed a number of specific pronouncements, and some of those pronouncements dealt with this issue of what they were doing in the grain field. So that would be my understanding of the issue. There is a specific Pharisaic interpretation of what it means to not work on the Sabbath that's involved here. And Carl can tell you what the answer really is when he 
talks this afternoon. The final thing is just to point out, as you're probably familiar with, that the second passage talks about what David did when he went into the house of God, and that's from this passage in 1 Samuel. Then David came to Nob to Ahimelech the priest, and Ahimelech came trembling to meet David and said to him, Why are you alone and no one with you? And David said to Ahimelech the priest, The king has commissioned me with a matter and has said to me, Let no one know anything about the matter on which I am sending you and with which I have commissioned you, and I have directed the young men to a certain place. And you're probably aware the actual situation is that David is on the lamb. So, Now therefore, what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread or whatever can be found. And the priest answered David and said, There is no ordinary bread on hand, but there is consecrated bread, if only the young men have kept themselves from women. And David answered the priest and said to him, Surely women have been kept from us as previously, when I set out, and the vessels of the young men were holy, though it was an ordinary journey, how much more then today will their vessels be holy? So the priest gave him consecrated bread, for there was no bread there but the bread of the presence, which was removed from before the Lord, in order to put hot bread in its place when it was taken away. I will mention that people go back and forth. There's some discussion about whether the specifics, when it's talking about replacing the bread with the hot bread and so forth, there's a discussion about whether that indicates that this event happened on the Sabbath and whether that is significant in the issue since Sabbath-keeping is what's the question in Matthew. So that's all I have to say. These are just... Some of the things that I think are helpful to keep in mind as you're trying to sort out these two passages. My main piece of advice to you would be, say, I don't know what you concluded in your discussions about what was happening in Hosea and how chesed was being used in that context. I would just urge you to feel free to take what you learned about chesed in the Hosea passage and bring it to bear on what it is we're looking at in Matthew even in spite of the word Elias, don't let that dictate to you. You have some freedom to try to put it together, if that makes any sense. Okay, so let's go.